Recorded live. This is an interactive, interactive. interactive podcast designed for audience participation. Come talk, talk, talk. text chat, or listen live at TalkShoe.com. Now sit back and listen. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio. We have a couple of excellent guests here today. We'd like to get started as quick as possible. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe. My co-host here in the studio is Cliff Slotnick. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Cliff. And CJ Cyberjockey, Zach Slotnick. Hey, Joe. Good morning, Zach. Good, good choice on the music for our first guest. Uh, but before we get into the first cast, I'd like to first of all thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com, and our other original and continuing sponsor, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. We have two great guests today. Craig Philman from MoistureMappers.com and Greg Bauman from the National Pest Management Association. They're both on the line and probably will be with us here for the uh, entire show, I'm hoping. And we've already got a couple quick questions that have been requested, so I think we're going to bring the microband trivia question in in, uh, in a little bit. And let's go to that one question we had right away, if you wouldn't mind. Oh, uh, certainly, Joe. The microband trivia question for December fifteenth, two 2006, uh, with one of our guests coming from the pest control industry, we thought we would introduce another pest control question. Uh, the tank sprayer, which has become synonymous with the pest control field, we're looking for the two individuals who created and refined the concept into the basic design that is still in use today. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Our first guest today will be Greg Bowen. National Pest Management Association. He's a chemist that has worked for an insurer of pest control companies handling claims ranging from wood-destroying insect damage to alleged health effects of pest control activities. He also worked in the plant and food safety, owned a pest control business, and now serves as the vice president of the National Pest Management Association. Welcome, Greg. Good morning, Greg. Uh, we do you have we have Greg on the line. Greg? Yes, yes. There oh, we perfect. go. Okay, That's good. good. Okay. Now, we I, also I, yeah. have... We got in, got in. Yeah, thank you for okay. the opportunity. We appreciate it. Great. Uh, a couple of questions about the association. Uh, when yeah. was it founded, Greg, the NPMA? Well, the uh, National Pest Management Association was founded in 1933, so we've been around a long time. How many members do you have at this point? Right now, we have uh, just over 5,600 member companies, uh, majority in the U.S., but we're also international. We have a very active group internationally, and uh, that represents about 80% of the pest control market in the United States. 
Perfect. Well, before we get into indoor air quality issues, as trainers, Joe and I have a specific interest in training, and we'd like to talk to you about what the training and licensing requirements would be for those people engaged in the pest management field. Could you comment on that for us, please? Yeah, sure, sure. You know, at one time it was uh, extremely easy to get into the pest control industry, you know, for just a couple dollars and some, um, some equipment you could get into the business. I heard the trivia question. It's a great question. Um, and today it's changed quite a bit. Uh, many states have licensing of the companies themselves, meaning that you'd have to have a proof of financial responsibility, generally speaking, a uh, liability insurance policy, and you have to have a certain amount of education and training, and at least one person in the company is going to have to have passed an exam. And beyond that, many states now are getting into a situation where all employees that are out in the field doing pest control have to pass an exam. So it's been quite an evolutionary process compared to, say, even you know, 30 or 40 years ago. What uh, pests are typically considered to be those that impact upon the indoor air quality in the, in the home? Well, there are a lot of pests. I just want to say one quick thing. Um, you know, in the United States, I guess we're kind of fortunate in that, you know, pests seem so much of a more of a nuisance than life-threatening. And I want to commend you folks for um, for addressing pests that actually can be health-related uh, or cause health problems. And we see many types of pests that can lead to health problems. I think it's important to keep it in perspective, too. There are potential diseases caused by pests. But I also think it's important that you know we don't um, um, you know worry, stay awake at night worrying that um, you know our house might uh, be an unhealthy environment. But we do have certain pests that are going to to affect the um, the health of the inhabitants. Uh, probably the most important one, just nationwide, would have to be cockroaches. Uh, there's been a lot of medical information written about cockroaches, and about 40%, I guess, of of asthmatics actually react to cockroach allergens. And I guess the, probably, uh, you know, a big question that would arise in most people's minds now is, well, what part of the roach are people allergic to? And the answer is just about everything. You know, they're droppings, um, pieces of the, um, of the shell. So it's a, um, um, these airborne particulates, um, again, a study done in New York City shows 40% of asthmatics reacted to cockroach allergens as well. And then we have rodents as well, and you have um, all heard of, of hantavirus, and that's a, a problem with rodents. And sometimes if birds get in, they can be a health problem as well. So I would say that you have insects, you have rodents, and you have birds. And then you have a few spiders, and we can talk about those at some other point here. Perfect. Do you have any specific cases that come to your mind of how pests have adversely affected a specific indoor environment? Oh, sure. Um, gosh, let me, let me think of, uh, well, here's a perfect example. And, and you know, a key point, and I'm not an indoor air expert as you folks are, I mean, just in the pest control realm, but you have two issues. You have real health consequences, and then you have something that you, people would, in, would view it as a, a dirty air or a pollution, pollution problem. It might not be a health problem, but it's something that's unpalatable for them to breathe. Um, they just don't want to be around the area. And I'm thinking of a particular case, and not, to, not it, actually in your, your area of the country, uh, towards the Midwest, where there was a massive infestation of mice, 
And what happened was they were in the HVAC system for a long time. And, you know, of course, they have a lot of uh, rodent urine in there. And, of course, when the fall came and they turned on the heat, all of this odor then goes pouring into this commercial building. Now, was it dangerous in terms of public health? I'd say if they tested the air, they probably found some things that would be concerning. But the most important thing is that it had a terrible odor. And in the mind of the inhabitants, that was an indoor air quality. Absolutely. Would you say that pests or pesticides pose more indoor air quality problems? Well, pesticides are very broad, and they include sanitizers and you know even laundry bleach. Okay, so I'm going to talk about the products that the pest control industry uses, if that's okay, if we narrow it down to that. Is that sure, all right? absolutely. Yes, please. That's what I okay. wanted you to talk about. Yeah. Um, what happens now is, at one time, I would say that the industry would go in and do a lot of preventative work by by putting out these products, and um, and today we we utilize a system which is the integrated pest management system. The first thing we do is a thorough inspection. So we're doing target applications now. Now I I think that we could probably have people that would have opinions both ways, but probably pests. Remember, a million people die of malaria every year. Now, that's not 100% an indoor pest, and that's not in the United States. But the point is, pests are more than a nuisance, and I think people have to understand that. And so I'd, I'd put my money on the pest as being a, a more dangerous um, um, attribute out there. I would agree with you. I, I noticed you mentioned that I, I, I can't remember the exact wording, but that um, there were other things that we should take into consideration besides just stopping the pest after they're there. What types of measures do you take to avoid having these pests get into your home in the first place or your building? Well, the industry today pretty much subscribes to this, this uh, uh, concept, and it's been around starting in agriculture, and it's called Integrated Pest Management, Integrated Pest Management, or IPM. And there are several steps involved with integrated pest management. The first thing you do is a thorough inspection of an account. It could be a house or a commercial building or whatever. So you do a thorough inspection, and then you collect specimens. If you find something, you identify it. So, so the second step is identifying it. And then the third step is determining if there's a, uh, an acceptable level of these pests. And, of course, in the residential environment, people have zero tolerance. So generally speaking, there is no threshold. And then you put together control measures, and it could be as simple as vacuuming. It could be sealing cracks and crevices. It could be an application of a product. And then the fifth and a very important part is to monitor the effectiveness of your program. So go back and reinspect. And using this process, you have an early warning system, so you don't wait until there's a massive infestation before you um, take some sort of measures. So integrated pest management um, I, inspection, identification, establishing threshold levels or acceptable levels, uh, take some sort of control measures, and then monitoring the effectiveness of the controls. And those control measures, you know, as I said, they don't have to be an application of a product. They could be sealing cracks and crevices, putting screens on windows, things like that. Things like um, not leaving certain food items out or yeah, in terms of roaches, that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. If you are concerned about roaches, you want to make sure that um, you, you know they, they eat what we eat, and don't forget areas where cookies and things spill, you know, underneath a stove or or in, 
even back behind a silverware drawer or something like that. And they also need moisture. So if there's some condensation or a, an ice maker drip, and I, I believe that Craig's going to be talking about moisture issues in, in a bit here, but they need moisture as well. So an, an ice maker is a perfect spot for a leak in the back that people don't notice, and it's a good source of water for the roaches. But keeping things very clean will get rid of the roaches, reduce the um, availability of food for mice as well. You know, consumers are very concerned about pesticides. Can you comment on how the pesticides of today compare in efficacy and safety to the pesticides of yesteryear? Well, there's probably some, some really good data on this at, at EPA, but I'm just going to give you my own observation after about 30 years involved with this. Um, we used to have to use a lot more of the product to get control in the past. Uh, in fact, just to tell you about concentrations, typically just even maybe 10 years ago, you would use a 1% dilution of some of these products. And today you're using 0.06% or 0.03%. So the amounts getting down there are very low. And in terms of toxicity, these products um, are, are a newer generation product. They work better at a smaller level. So um, we're very excited to see some of these things. A lot of them have come from the agriculture market and worked into our industry but we're very excited to see some of these things, and they typically won't have an odor, and that's a positive thing as well. Can you comment on the effect that government regulation and licensing has had on the pest management industry? Has it been good or bad or indifferent? And do you think that the government regulation has any benefits over self-industry regulation? Well, you know, some industries, and I think primarily the home inspection world, um, you know, they, they were into self-regulation before they had government regulation. Our industry historically had, had no regulation, and um, you know, 40, 50 years ago, you know, there, there was not a um, self-policing um, mode in effect as well. So government regulations came into being, and also because of products that are used, you know, concerned about about use of these um, these products in people's homes, and so the regulations actually, for the most part, are very workable and very fair. Um, we're always looking to make productivity improvements on them, but I think government regulation is going to be required because of the products that are used and the fact they're in people's homes. And so um, we're seeing a shift now towards stepping above and beyond the minimum standard of government regulation and getting into professional credentialing as well now. With, with respect to those minimum standards, is um, do you have, as we do in, some, in the water damage and mold remediation fields, uh, prescriptive standards? Uh, are there written standards for pest control? Is there some protocol or standard operating procedure that you're supposed to follow? Well, I'd like to go back to the government regulations. Um, what, what happens is when a product is, is accepted for use, a label is approved, and the label is the prescriptive, essentially prescriptive instructions as to how the product must be used, and it's a violation of federal law to deviate from that. So historically, the industry has looked at that, and it'll even get into you know, um, personal protection equipment. It will get into how to mix the material, how to store the material, how to clean it up, where to treat it, uh, where, where to use it to, to treat for various types of insects, what concentration. So, the, so the, when you're talking about government regulations, the label essentially is the law. But we now are getting into other areas away from product use and getting into 
um, standards or guidelines using this integrated pest management. Um, for the first time, our industry has developed commercial standards for food, facility, food manufacturing facilities. And again, it's above and beyond product use. It's getting more into the operations side. So we're seeing the government regulations stay in place, the labels stay in place, but the professionalism of the industry is, is increasing dramatically and has increased dramatically. With the heightened awareness that consumers have to pesticides, is it a standard practice for a pest control firm to have the client sign a hold harmless agreement before these products would be used on their premises? Because these products are reviewed and accepted by the U.S. EPA and in the various states register these products as well, there hasn't been as much concern about the product itself. So, so some companies might have somebody sign a hold harmless agreement. You're talking about being exposed to the product as opposed to any other type of liability, correct? Correct, yes. Okay. Um, be, because these products are go through the registration process and there's a very strict series of standards for scrutinizing these products, uh, it's not really been a problem. Maybe some companies have a hold harmless, but it has to be any hold harmless agreement has to be a very has to be very reasonable. I think courts have found that if you put a hold harmless agreement in, and um, and, and and you're not doing a, essentially an industry standard of practice, you're still going to be liable. So we don't see a lot of people using hold harmless agreements with respect to the products. Well, I, the reason I wanted to point that out is, or ask you that question is, in the disaster restoration and water restoration industry, there is a movement that encourages people to create heightened awareness of clients by getting them to uh, sign these documents and sign their rights away and so on and so forth. I've always been against that practice, and uh, I think that our industry should probably follow along with what's going on in the pest control industry because you folks have been doing it a lot longer and with a greater level of professionalism, I think. I, th I think one of the things is that um, some of the products that you would use in the remediation business are not designed specifically for that application necessarily. Um, I, and I'm not an expert at this. You might have to help me here. But if people use, say, chlorine or bleach, that product is not necessarily designed specifically for mold remediation, so the instructions on the label do not say, if you're using this for mold, here's how you have to use it. Whereas in the, in the pest control industry, we do have that. Every product has a specific application where it can be used and how much it, you, you can, you're allowed to use. I think the mold thing, just to comment on that, is you know, typically the government doesn't necessarily consider mold to be a pathogen. So uh, as a registrar of uh, antimicrobial products, they won't let you put certain claims on your label. You know, we can kill toxic black mold, uh, mm -hmm. et cetera. We can kill stachybotrys and so on and so forth. A lot of times the government rejects that information because they have not considered those things pathogens. What they do consider a pathogen, however, is athlete's food fungi. Hmm. And that's typically one of the test organisms that is tested against to get a fungicidal claim. Greg, I'm, I'm curious, uh, within the indoor environmental quality industry, we talk a lot about dust mites. And I'm, I'm curious, do you consider them a, a pest, or is that something that you have, that your membership deals with typically, or is that not something that you typically work on? Well, we, we get questions about house dust mites frequently, and there was quite a flurry of activity. It, just, it preceded the mold flurry of activity of maybe five years ago, you know. 
and mm-hmm. and everybody was talking about house dust mites, and people were saying, you know, we clean your air ducts, get rid of house dust mites. And some of our members are getting uh, into house dust mite control, but it's not the way you would think. There are very few products out there can, that can be applied for house dust mites. What, what they're doing is they're typically reducing the humidity dramatically, and that's probably one of the most successful ways of controlling house dust mites. And again, you get back to the integrated pest management approach. It's not using a product; it's using a technology, thinking like the pest, essentially. You so know, probably not. A, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say they're typically go. getting into the dehumidification, trying to you know, put dehumidification boosters in, and then vacuuming very thoroughly, and uh, and that type of thing. You know, probably not a day goes by that I see a television commercial and one of the larger pest control companies is in a home and they'll show one of their technicians applying a pesticide. Generally, it's a crack and crevice application and they're spraying. And what I find unusual is that uh, in the disaster restoration industry, if someone was applying a product, they would be uh, in full-face respirators and Tyvek and and rubber gloves. And uh, it seems that the pest control industry seems to handle the actual risks that are posed by the product much better than this overreaction that we seem to get in the disaster restoration. Oh, you know, you, bring, you raise a really good point there. Um, historically, you would see people come to your house, and typically they would be wearing rubber gloves and respirators. So you can just see, when getting back to a question of a few minutes ago, you can see how the products have changed in terms of safety. No longer do you have to to use um, this type of personal protection equipment for for most of the products. That's the first item, and the second item. I again, I can't speak for your remediation industry, but perhaps it's a combination of the product that you're using, as well as concern about the airborne particulates of the of the pest itself or the mold itself. And um, typically, you know, we'll tell people uh, an example is. Well, there's a lot of um, well, we have a lot of rodent droppings, which might be a um, hantavirus concern. We'll put that on to protect ourselves from our target, just like you're putting those personal protection equipment pieces on to protect yourself from your target, which is the mold. Uh, yeah, I think oh, you hit it right sense. on the head. <laughs> that's that's very uh, you know that's a a good way of looking at that issue in that. These workers are exposed on a daily basis to these different contaminants. They may not know at what levels, but I'm curious, how did in the past when you had people who were wearing personal protective equipment because of the product they were using, how did you handle that as far as um, talking to the customer before going in so that when they see you in this that they have some understanding of why? Well, probably the best thing you can do, let me just back up to answer that question. The first thing to do is you have to get your technicians totally on board, the people that are going to be servicing the houses. So there's a tremendous amount of safety training. They have to understand why they're using the respirator so that they're um, able to you know, support the use when they're in somebody's house. That's item one. And the second thing is when... You go into somebody's house and you say, I'm going to have to put my respirator on here, but yet they don't have a respirator. Typically, they're going to be asked to leave while uh, that product might be applied. Okay, very few products require a respirator, but they'll be asked to leave for a certain period. And also reminding the customer that this technician does this full-time every day. Now, they're not using a product eight hours a day, but they're using a product every day. And so 
it's a matter of exposure and risk. And so when you're out there working this every day, you want to certainly make sure that you're in full compliance with the label. And also the technician can be a lot closer to the product than the homeowner is. That's exactly what I, I – I appreciate that answer, Greg, because that's exactly what I was hoping you would say. I wasn't sure it wasn't something that we had discussed beforehand, but it's it's an issue that does come up with mold remediation and water damage restoration, and that's the way we would recommend they handle it uh, exactly. So it looks like um, we've either learned something from you or somewhere along the way we're uh, doing things the same way. Well, that's good. And I'm glad to hear that. We um, will be uh, have to move on to our next guest in, in a few moments, but before we do, we had a, a couple of quick questions. One of them was bed bugs, and this uh, recently I've seen in the news that there's some type of reemergence or uh, renewal of mm-hmm. problems with respect to bed bugs. Can you comment on that? Yeah, it's it, it's a very amazing. It's almost a historic thing because we are seeing a resurgence of bed bugs, and um, you know, from oh, I'd say probably in the 70s, it would be a very very odd thing to have a bed bug call. In fact, if if you were in the pest control business and somebody says, "Yeah, bed bugs can come and take care of us," like, "Yeah, well, well, we'll go out there and see what it is," but it's probably not bed bugs. So they, they weren't extinct. They're never going to be extinct, but. It was it was such a, um, a rare occasion, and we just saw this increase in the last two or three years. In fact, one national company, a very large company, uh, noted a 300% increase in bed bug calls from one year to the next, and it just continues to build and build and build. Every day in the media, you're seeing stories about bed bugs and even lawsuits against hotels, and so it is a definite resurgence. Um, of this pest. There's no question about it. And we have some theories as to why this is happening. What's the theories? I'm, I'm curious. What are they? Well, uh, there, there are, you know, there are a couple you... things. Some people say, well, you know, we don't have the same products that we used uh, in houses before, and that contributes. But we believe that probably the most significant change is the increase in international travel and the rate at which people travel used to be that people would go and check in a hotel and stay three days to work. Now they're checking in, staying one night, moving to the next city, staying a night, moving to the next city. So we believe that international travel has a, has a lot to do with it. And the fact that people just didn't know what these things are. And so sometimes you have a, a major infestation before people realize, you know what, this, we might have to call a pest control company about this, you know. And so um, the bed bugs are a very interesting pest. I mean, they're they're elusive in that they're flat. They don't come out. They're transient. They'll hit you ride on your luggage, and you don't even know it. Aircraft holds. You know, when you put when you check your bag, you're in there with hundreds of bags from other people. And uh, and they're nocturnal. They come out and they bite you only at night. And nothing puts fear in a, in parents as much as an insect that can come out and bite their children while they sleep. That's just not a um, it's, it's not a happy situation. So it's created a lot of stir. Now, speaking of insects that create fear, probably the spider would be the one that most people are terrified of. Could you just give us a, a couple of notes on spiders? Sure. You know, it's funny. I um, I read a survey a couple years ago, and it said that it rated people's fears, and death was not number one. And spiders was actually ahead of death. So I thought, <laughs> that was really kind of – people very much are afraid of spiders, you know. 
And, and you know, black widow spiders is the one that everybody talks about, and it's found just about throughout the country, so it's, it's probably gets a lot of a lot of media attention. But if you get bitten by a, a black widow spider, you know, you might want to seek med- medical attention, but it's it's typically not a fatal situation. But the brown recluse spider is the one to watch out for. That's normally not fatal either, but when that one bites you, it can actually cause your your parts of if you get bit on the arm, for example, it can cause a crater, and it just basically all the skin and tissue just dies, and they have to do surgery, and that's a that's kind of frightening. But I would say the brown recluse spider is more frightening than black widow for sure. You know what opportunities might exist for indoor environmental professionals such as industrial hygienists to work in consort with pest management firms. Well, you know, we have different phases of, of the health of the house. If you're, if you're looking at indoor air quality people, they're taking, they're taking a look at perhaps a moisture situation that maybe has led to a mold situation, and that moisture might attract insects. And so we work hand-in-hand in, hand in that if there's a, a, a leaking roof that has led to some indoor air quality problems, we could also have roaches in there. And not just the traditional food roaches like the German roaches, but these roaches from outside in the southeast you might have smoky browns. They love to live in that wet, wet area there. And also when you're doing remediation and you're doing some repair work, you might find some termites. And so we're at different stages of the health of the house. And that's why it's a, you know, the two industries really need to, to partnership and work together on this. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Greg? You know what? Consumers, uh, professionals, indoor air uh, professionals can can uh, get some really good information by going to um, our website, which is www.pestworld. P-E-S-T-W-O-R-L-D. dot org. Pestworld. org. And in that area, um, you can. It doesn't matter if you're a professional or a consumer. You can post a question, and one of our staff will get back and post an answer to it. So you can ask a question about a product or about construction or about uh, anything that's tied into pest control, a particular roach that you've seen, and um, and we'll have a professional uh, post an answer to that. And that's a really nice service. People like that a lot. Great. That answers uh, one of our fi- final questions, which was, uh, you know, what could we add as, with respect to how you can help consumers or any advice you may have for consumers? The other thing that we'd like to add is that um, how can people talk to you possibly or would you recommend they go to the Pest World and ask the questions? Yeah, probably the best thing is to go to Pest World. And and the advantage there is that anybody who comes up with a question, there are probably a thousand other people uh, wondering about it. And Mm -hmm. so if you post the question, we post the answer, it benefits many, many people. And so that's probably a good thing. And and email address is on there as well, but I typically will – avoid uh, we we try to avoid answering one-on-one technical questions we would do that for an indoor air professional but we try to get as as much exposure to the answers as possible to help other people okay and you, know, you mentioned indoor air professionals and i i guess i had one more quick question for yeah. you have you um looked at maybe uh working with some of the other associations that uh provide indoor environmental quality services or do you go to their conferences or do they come to your conference? Do you have a national conference? Yeah, we do have a national conference. This is in October every year and this past year was in Texas and we had, oh boy, we had um, well over 3,000 people there 
And so it's a pretty nice-sized conference, including a trade show. We have about 120 educational seminars. And from time to time, we will have some folks coming in talking on indoor air quality, but we certainly would like a closer relationship with the Indoor Air Quality Associations. Uh, we do know some people, but uh, for, if there's anybody out there in the association, you know, please drop me an email. The information's on that website. Very good. Well, we uh, appreciate you being with us here today, and thank you. Hopefully, we'll talk to you again down the road. And All right, I'll thanks hold again, on. Greg. Oh, absolutely. Please stay with okay. us, and then uh, at the end, we typically will have uh, a few people asking. We we had a nice roundtable last week. We're hoping it happens again this week at the end of the program. And uh, as a little teaser for that end of the program, we are going to add a little current events section this week. One item will have to do with actually the pest control control and related industries, and the other will have to do with some information that uh, follows up to a guest we had on last week. So we'll just leave that out as a teaser and then stay tuned for that. And stay tuned and we will bring in our second guest. I think uh, CJ may have an intro because coming we've in. got money. Yeah. Money. All right, thank you, Zach, for that little introduction for our next guest is Craig Philman. Craig is a moisture expert. He actually started out well, I don't know if he started out there, but in 1984 to 1991, he was the founder of Munter's Moisture Control Services. Many of you in the IAQ industry are probably familiar with Munter's. He then went on to become the vice president and general manager of Munter's Cargo Care. He also was the owner and general manager of a Paul Davis Systems in central New Hampshire, moved on to the Desiccant Rotors International from 2001 to 2004, and has been a principal in business development solutions from 1995 to 2005. Most recently, Craig is with Moisture Mapper International, where he is the president and founder to present. And Craig, are you on the line with us? Uh, yes, I am, Cliff. How are you? Craig, it's a, a pleasure to have you on with us. and. I have, we had a guest on earlier that I understand you had a little conversation with before we started, and hopefully he'll come back and join us again here. We uh, have a, a series of questions here for you, and I'd like to start by talking a little bit about moisture intrusion. And who are the, you know, well, let's start with instruments. I think that's something that a lot of our listeners are interested in. What types of instruments are used to detect moisture and, and monitor moisture? And uh, can you give us a little background on them? Yeah, first of all, Cliff, I just want to add something to my biography. I had a uh, very significant introduction to the marketplace through a company called First Restoration Services in Charlotte and was with them for several years during that period and uh, learned an awful lot from their process and procedures. I do want to add that uh, at every water damage job and every school I go to, um, we learn something about water damage, and I'm, uh, I'm no different. In answer to your question, um, there's quite a few different types of instruments out there, and it all depends 
on what you are measuring in the water damage restoration process. Obviously, you want to create the proper environment to dry the materials, and, and uh, that includes getting the relative humidity or the grains per pound quite low in the area where you want to dry it. Therefore, you must measure temperature relative humidity in the water damage area, and you also want to compare that with measurements taken from the undamaged or outside area. And uh, the, there's quite a few instruments that are on the market out there that do this, and they measure, like I said, temperature relative humidity. Some of them even calculate grains per pound. Um, that's one type of instrument. The other type of instruments measure moisture content of materials, and there are basically two different types. There is an invasive or non-invasive. Um, we also hear it being destructive or penetrating, but I think the proper word is invasive or non-invasive. Um, the invasive ones generally measure uh, a resistance between two points that are put into the material, and obviously that becomes difficult in something like concrete, but um, very accurate. Um, the non-invasive ones um, measure by putting uh, radio waves, uh, that's about as much as I can describe that, but radio waves into the material and measure some deflection. I'd like to point out that all of these instruments have pluses and minuses in terms of their, their calibration and uh, in terms of their accurate readings. So the best way to do it is to find some material that's not water damaged and then use that as your drying standard. How about clearing, uh, giving us some industry nomenclature? We hear the terms equilibrium and normal moisture content equilibrium. Can you give us definitions for those terms, Craig? Sure, that's a good question, Cliff. Uh, all materials do have moisture in them uh, in their normal environment. Um, there is a specification, at least for commercial buildings, when you are designing them, the HVAC system must keep the temperature roughly between 68 and 80 degrees, and then the relative humidity has a very specific control point between 40% and 60%. Um, in that 40 to 60% range, materials will pick up moisture from the air, and the, the correct term for that is hygroscopic meaning materials will pick up moisture from the air and also give up moisture to the air. So normal equilibrium refers to the amount of moisture in a material in the environment that it exists in, and that would be somewhere between 40 and 60 percent. Refer to that as normal equilibrium. Now I have, this is Joe, I have uh... I'm not a water damage restoration guy. That's not my background. I come more from the health and safety and industrial hygiene end of things. But I've been dealing a lot with water damage people over the last six years, let's say. And I am, you know, I hear the word moisture mapping or the the phrase moisture mapping, and I've been out with people and done some of what I would consider moisture mapping. But could you describe for us what 
you consider to be the proper way to do moisture mapping? Yeah, that's another good question. Um, like Cliff had alluded to, I've been in the business since the early 80s. And this business has, uh, has grown in terms of equipment and uh, processes and um, uh, how you actually do the business. And my take is that the next major leap in the water damage restoration business is going to be proper documentation of jobs. And using these instruments, it is critical that you map or document or in some way write down the areas that are wet on most or the materials that are outside of their normal equilibrium. Most water damage jobs, uh, at least the ones I've been involved in, um, are not totally wet. There may be one room or one wall in a room or part of a ceiling. And it's critical to clearly identify that at the beginning. And the term mapping has been used, oh, I guess for eight or ten years now. And somehow conveying that in a final report, what room, what part of the building, et cetera, was initially wet. It's also important to include the amount of moisture in that mapping or in that particular area that's wet. And then at the end of the job, you want to show that it's back to its normal state of equilibrium. And to do that, um, it, it's, it's somewhat difficult now. These guys are and ladies are operating with, uh, with clipboards and, and trying to do that as best they can. And a good map of the water damage is essential to either verify that it's dry or at least to limit your liability. If it gets wet again, you want to have the proper map or documentation that the structure was dry when you left it. What was your inspiration for putting this product together, Craig? Well, um, I've been in the uh, consulting business um, um, since 1995. And during that time, um, I did some training at 30-plus restoration companies throughout the country. Um, also, have taught the WLS program, the Water Loss Specialist Program for uh, ASCAR. And um, during that time, I had the opportunity to come in contact with um, a lot of people in the water damage restoration industry. The more I traveled and looked at job files and did some consulting, I really found a, uh, a lack of proper documentation. Everyone was doing it a little bit differently. Um, it was incomplete. And there wasn't any real good training program that showed you how to do that. About uh, four years ago with uh, one of the founders of Moisture Mapper, we were talking about coming up with a simple software program that could bring all this information together, create a final report, and more importantly, analyze how the job was done in terms of applying equipment, uh, labor, et cetera. And then you could come up with a, say, a drying rate and look at slopes of curve on how, curves on how quickly materials dried really come up with a, a standard for different parts of the country. So this 
takes into consideration different parts of the country as well. The software, I guess, is built in to take that into consideration. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, Cliff, uh, materials exist in their normal state of equilibrium. And clearly, wallboard in a high humidity area in Florida will have its normal equilibrium somewhere between 12 and 15 percent moisture content by weight. We're up in the Northeast or, or the Upper Midwest, where it's uh, uh, relatively dry um, and has that uh, drying effect in the winter. You will see uh, moisture content down around 8 percent. So it, it does uh, take a look at different parts of the country, and, and we're not developing the standards. What we're just doing is analyzing the jobs that are put in by our current users uh, in an anonymous way, I'd like to add. We don't know, you know who the customer is or who really the contractor is, but we're taking a look at some standards as to what they find is dry, how long it takes to do it, and different types of equipment that are effective in that part of the country. It sounds like this might be a valuable resource for insurance companies. Can you comment on that? Um, yes, it is. Uh, as you know, insurance companies are one of the major stakeholders in this uh, in terms of uh, um, the contractors they use and ultimately the dollars they pay out on a loss. And uh, we're working with uh, three insurance carriers right now and helping them on the reinspection process and also analyzing um, um, the jobs and, like I said, the application of equipment, labor, and uh, the monitoring. So the insurance carriers are, uh, are very interested. I would like to point out, though, that our approach to the market in this is, and I've come from the contracting side of the business, is we really want this to be a useful tool for the water damage restoration professional. We want them to better manage their business, better apply their equipment, better use their labor so that hopefully that we can improve the market um, and in essence improve the way they do business and ultimately get them more assignments from the insurance carrier. Now, I'm curious, We've uh, I've done some moisture mapping of my own and gone out actually with Cliff on a few jobs where we used photo documentation. Does, do you use photo documentation as a part of the, is that incorporated into the program as well? Sure it is. Um, um, uh, photos are a very important part of the process. And not only do we do some drawings and identify by number what's wet, but you can very easily add electronic photos to, uh, to it. And I will add, you can write over them so you can uh, indicate where the moisture points are or what's wet. And along with that, one of the instruments that I didn't measure was infrared, which is playing a very major part in the, uh, in the documentation process. Infrared me measures temperature difference, and whenever you have something wet, you often have a temperature difference, and that will give you a quick scan on what's wet. And we can also upload infrared images um, associated with the water damage. You actually anticipated a text question that came in, so hopefully uh, that answered the question. There was a question, what about infrared and thermal imaging? Now, when you incorporate infrared and thermal imaging, do you also recommend they, have, of course, I guess, follow up with 
the moisture monitoring equipment you described before to verify that it's temperature differential caused by moisture? Yeah, uh, that's a very important point um, that I didn't cover. But infrared does nothing more than measure temperature differences. And um, the instruments that I talked about before, invasive and non-invasive, are a much more accurate way of measuring moisture in the material. For instance, if you use infrared and you have metal studs, you will often see those metal studs uh, in that infrared picture, which, of course, does not indicate moisture. Also, if you're looking at ceilings that have air ducts, you will also see uh, a difference in temperature. But uh, you've got to be very careful with the infrared. But um, I've used it on several major projects where you have a lot of area that you need to survey, and it really gives you a, a nice, a, a, an ability to quickly scan these areas and then, of course, follow up with a, uh, a much more uh, accurate instrument, as I mentioned. I'm curious, what are the most, in, in your experience, what are the most difficult construction materials or situations to dry properly and then to document that they're dried properly? Well, that, that, that's a very broad question, and um, I'll answer that generally and then get into some, some specifics. Like I mentioned earlier, I learned something on every water damage job that I go in, and unfortunately that lesson usually comes toward the end of the project. And uh, where you think that everything's dry and a day be, day or two before you end, you go, oops, I overlooked something. And that's generally due to what we call a vapor barrier. And a vapor barrier is a, um, is a material that moisture will not travel through. My experience is that materials dry, they'll give up the moisture the same way the water or the moisture got into them. And for instance, if you have a vinyl wallpaper over a wallboard, you, uh, you will retard the rate of drying. Um, there's some other very hard materials to dry. Um, for instance, concrete needs to be addressed in a little different manner, uh, but it can be dried. And uh, things like underneath gym floors or traps where you cannot really get good moisture sensing equipment in there. And there's ways of of getting airflow in that area, measuring the uh, grains per pound of the air going in, measuring the grains per pound of the air coming out, and when those are equal, theoretically, things are dried, but that's not always the case. I guess an, an, an answer to that is when you do not want to do any destruction to really get into materials, you want to keep it in its original state, and you're trying to dry it by getting air up against the surface, very dry air and those become some of the more difficult jobs. We have a text message. Uh, has your, what reception has your system gotten from contractors, insurance companies, franchisees? Well, what we found is at this point, um, we, we had two beta test sites that we ran for a year, two uh, well-known contractors that I have a lot of respect for, and they gave us some tremendous insight on how to make this thing make the information uh, better for them to manage their company. Um, we introduced it to the public last March, and at this point we've got about 250 users. 
and uh, not all of them are using it on a daily basis. They use it in, in different capacities. But um, we've got a very positive uh, feedback from those that are using it regularly. Um, and uh, with any software, there's improvements going on every day. And our goal is to cut the time that it takes to uh, get all this document documentation uh, into the program. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, we're working with three insurance carriers uh, to give them a better understanding of what the contractor is really doing out there. Um, there is a lot of uh, pricing done by unit cost pricing that really doesn't reflect what's happening at the job site and is somewhat forcing the contractor to charge uh, a lower amount than he really does. So we, we hope that we're, uh, we're going to better educate the insurance industry as what's really required at the water damage loss. Do you do the same, do you use this, the program, I guess I should say, does it differentiate or do you feel we need to differentiate between whether it's a water damage that's uh, category one, category two, category three? Do you have any comments on that? Sure, that's, a, that's an important aspect and, and we, we are nothing more than a drying program, Cliff, and uh, we do indicate though which category it is and it's incumbent upon the contractor to follow the procedures, and a good set of procedures is in the IICRC uh, S500 that really addresses that. So we, we don't try to uh, give them direction on how to do that. We strictly track what's wet and um, rates of drying and what instrumentation is used. But as terms of the three categories, um, you can identify it in there, but uh, we don't give you any direction on how to do that. Craig, you mentioned the IICRC S500 water damage standard. Would your system be in parallel with or in opposition to what's written in the IICRC S500? No, it's interesting, Cliff. Um, um, I've been very close to um, uh, the IICRC over the years, and uh, we developed the programs based upon uh, my perception of what's needed, and then I went back and compared it with Chapter 8 of the standard, uh, for those of you who don't know, Chapter 8 is administrative procedures, um, um, documentation, project documentation, and risk management. And that is very specific as to what needs to be tracked at the job. And when I did a check about two months ago, I found that all, with the exception of one or two items dealing with uh, contract uh, management, we cover everything that's required by the uh, S500 third edition. Craig, there's some rumors of new technology on the horizon in the water restoration field. Can you enlighten us about that? Well, there's some things that I know about that I uh, am not at liberty to talk about, but uh, clearly what's coming down the road is more hands-off documentation. Um, in other words, things that can be tracked without labor actually uh, taking a handheld meter and putting it up against a water damage document. Um, there's also uh, better inventory systems for keeping track of the equipment. And job costing is always uh, very important for well-run companies. They want to know the labor that's there, the trucks or any equipment that's applied. 
So it's an automation of these functions that will um, improve, I guess, our understanding of what goes on there and, and really give the contractor a better understanding of where his true costs are in doing a water damage job. All right. Well, before we move on, is there anything that you would like to add? Well, um, as you can tell, I'm very excited about Moisture Mapper, and we've got a very positive response from uh, several of the schools that are out there. Um, we do a quarterly training, a one-day program specifically on mapping and documentation, for which uh, you will get one uh, CEC credit from IICRC if you're a member. And there's also eight uh, continuing education units for insurance uh, people. But uh, we're pretty excited at the at the market response, Cliff, and uh, we look forward to uh, dealing with more people at this point. Any comments for or suggestions for consumers that are? I know you've been involved in a lot of water damage situations. What what kind of uh, advice would you give consumers that have just had a water damage for the first time and they're trying to figure out how to handle it? Well, as you know, one of the critical things is to get your insurance carrier involved. And um, one of the first things that the carrier asks is in an event-related uh, incident or is it a des design problem. And I don't want to speak for the insurance industry, but some things are covered and some things are not. So that's, uh, that's very important for the consumer to uh, find out where they stand at the, uh, at the initial part of the loss. And how could listeners contact you if they wanted to touch base with you after the program? Well, you can go to our website, which is www.moisturemapper.com, and uh, we have a support section on there. And if anyone's interested, um, we can do a go-to meeting and uh, show them the specifics of Moisture Mapper. And we'll actually give them a password for 30 days so they can uh, test drive it, so to speak. Very good. Well, thank you for joining us here on IAQ Radio. And if you'd like to stick around for the little roundtable we'll have here in about five minutes, we'd love to have you join us, Craig. My pleasure. All right. Today we're going to add a little segment that we have not included in the past. We're trying to have a, a current events section, and what we'd like to do is add two current events this week. The first one I'm going to let Cliff Zlotnick introduce. It's a current event that relates back to our first guest's area of expertise. Cliff? I would like our listeners to be aware that the Environmental Protection Agency is considering training requirements for users of disinfectants and sanitizers. Essentially, the EPA is considering revisions to its existing worker training and certification regulations that would extend training and certification requirements to users of disinfectants, sanitizers, and other antimicrobial products in the course of their employment. Uh, you can actually comment to the EPA on this issue. So you might, if you've got a feeling on it, I would suggest that you do so one way or another. So you go to epa.gov and Absolutely. type in uh, what would that be the key words at the bottom of that page there, Cliff? Let's see. We've Actually, got, I would uh, suggest one of the best ways to do it would be to do it through the environment. 
through the ISSA, which is the International Sanitary Supply Association, and their phone number is 800-225-4772, or they can be reached at legislative at issa.com. Repeat, legislative at issa.com. Thank you, Cliff. And as a quick follow-up to last week's show, we had a guest on last week, Elisa Larkin, who was discussing her appeal protest and resignation from the IICRC's S520 committee. IAQ Radio has been following the progress of the S520 Mold Remediation Standard Revisions Committee, and we have a, a brief update on activities from this week. There was a meeting of stakeholders to try and resolve disagreement regarding the use of the term Indoor Environmental Professional and the acronym IEP. Although it was noteworthy that the AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, for those of you not familiar with them, a group that represents members including certified industrial hygienists, were in attendance, there were also some noteworthy absences. One source commented to us that the meeting was dominated by IICR insiders. We will continue to follow the story and update listeners. We also have had other sources indicate that if IICRC follows through with the proposed changes in the document and that that would probably satisfy most stakeholders. There was a, a nice press release that came out. There were several people that commented to us that if these things were to actually occur and that they were to follow up on some of these protests and appeal, that we might have some consensus within the industry for the standard. So things have turned around a little bit. They're looking a little bit better. And uh, I'd like to bring our guests back for just a few final comments. Any comments from either Craig or our, our first guests? You got, we still have you guys on the line? Okay, back. It's Greg. Greg, you're back. Craig yes. and Greg. Okay. <laughs> um, just curious if you had anything you wanted to add before we go. Do you have any questions or comments for each other, actually? Yeah. Yeah, this, this is Greg. I was wondering if I could just say one thing here. I, Craig, after listening to your um, segment, it seems like there's uh, more and more um, overlap between pest control and moisture, and um, this has been very enlightening for me, and I hope that uh, the two industries can – can partner up and uh, share some information. Um, yeah, Greg, I was very interested in uh, our discussion before and your presentation on the air. And uh, moisture, as you mentioned, is one of the three things that a pest requires to um, to exist or uh, to proliferate. And, and my thinking is that uh, documentation of moisture in buildings um, can go along with some of the stuff that you're doing. But more importantly, also provide a report if a property ever changes hands. Sure. Excellent. It needs to take place. So, yeah, I'll, I'll be in touch with you, uh, Greg, and uh, let's put our heads together and uh, see if uh, it makes sense to include some uh, moisture mapping along with your report. Good. Well, I Joe, your, your listeners can probably get an update as things progress along that Absolutely. I've got a question for you, Greg. Uh, in the water restoration industry, it's common to find some surface uh, fungal colonization on wood materials. Can you just comment a little bit about wood rot? Yeah. Um, some states, but very few in a real estate transaction, will require 
um, what we call wood-destroying organisms. That's in insects plus the fungus. And we don't have to necessarily identify the type of fungus. We would just have to say that there is uh, some sort of decay there. Other states, like North Carolina, requires you to report moisture as a condition conducive. So a lot of times when a, let's say, a, a wood-destroying insect or a termite inspector would be looking at a house during a real estate transfer, they are not permitted to, to really report decay as um, as a as an issue to be resolved with, but they might put in the comments section because the idea is, well, we're not sure if anybody else is going to go in that crawl space, so we might just want to call it to the attention of the buyer very gently. We don't want to imply that it's a part of the inspection, though. So we run into this all the time. We get calls about it all the time. And even some of the pest control companies will get rid of surface fungus. Well, let's look, in terms of a follow-up question, you know, pest control companies get involved oftentimes with termite treatment once there is an active infestation, and then preventative treatment. Uh, are pest control companies getting involved in treatment of existing wood rot, and do you know whether or not they're getting involved in preventative treatments as part of the construction process, uh, you know, treatments to wood, topical products, uh, injections, et cetera, to prevent fungal contamination and wood rot? Well, you know, the, um, just in the last few years, some products have come out. Uh, one is applied as the house is being built, and I believe it's after, it's, um, after it goes through the dry, drying out process. Um, to prevent mold or a fungus growth on the on the new construction, and sometimes people, pest control companies will get involved if there's um, decay in, say, some of the joist in a crawl space or a basement. They'll apply a product on there to stop it. And typically, both of those products are going to be borate related, not boric acid, but borate related. Right. a natural product that's uh, mined out of California, and then these products are formulated especially for these applications. This is Joe. We have uh, been seeing a lot more, actually, pesticide applicators attending courses on mold remediation because they do run into it, and they do run into the wood rot, and they either want more information to... I think to protect themselves from maybe possible liability, and in some cases they're actually becoming involved in doing the microbial remediation while they're in these uh, facilities. Do you at the National uh, Association have any programs for these folks to learn a little bit more about those types of issues? Yeah, just about every year at our convention we'll have a session or two on, on this topic. We might get a fungus expert or mycologist to come in, but we'll also typically have um, uh, you know, people talk about how to apply these products and exhibitors will be there that manufacture these products. So it's, it's a, a much more common thing. And I also think that, yes, it's, it's the pest control industry wanting to get involved in this, but I also think the consumers are demanding it. They're saying, listen, I've got a decay problem down here. They don't know the difference between six-legged, four-legged, or no-legged sometimes. You know, it's a, it's a pest. It's something that's, that's a nuisance. And so they're asking the industry to take care of that, and so the industry stepping up to the plate. It sounds like bringing these industries all together between the indoor air quality folks, the moisture and water damage restoration people, the pesticide application folks, and then, of course, the builders and the, the construction industry all getting on the same page sure sounds like a good idea to me. And that's really what we're here for is to try and continue to bring in guests like the two we've had on here today, which were 
excellent guest, Craig Thillman and Greg Bauman. Uh, we appreciate you being with us here today on IAQ Radio, and I uh, look forward to hopefully seeing you again. Before we go, Cliff, I believe, has a, a final comment, or did you want to? No, I just wanted to thank the guests. I was going to give them an opportunity, whether or not they had one final comment that they wanted to make. Uh, this is Craig Philman. Uh Yeah, one comment. I think I called Joe Cliff through this, and I apologize for that. <laughs> That's all right, Craig. Not a problem. We. I apologize for that, but uh, I just want to tell you, you're both doing a great job, and uh, the industry really needs a uh, a forum like this that uh, that we can get on and discuss different things. And again, we don't have all the answers to this, but. Uh, we're continually looking at details and trying to improve the business. So thank you again to both of you. Thank you. All right. And we appreciate Greg, Greg it. Bauman here. We, we appreciate the opportunity, and uh, don't hesitate to follow up. If anybody, if, if you folks get any questions from uh, the listeners, feel free to forward them over to me, and we'll, we'll help out any way we can. Great. Thanks again for being with us. Gentlemen, we will talk to you in the future, and please join us again in the future. This is Joe Hughes saying thanks to my co-host, Cliff Slotnick. Our technical director couldn't make it today, but I always like to put a little note out that Dr. Dietrich Wow is going to be listening in eventually. And our cyber jockey here who's done another great job, and hopefully he's got a little music queued up for us at the end. So this is Joe Hughes saying please come back and join us next Friday for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. And also thanks again to you, our growing group, and it is growing, group of loyal listeners.